Hello, amazing, beautiful ladies. You are listening to the Igbo Women's Initiative podcast with Ugochi Onyewu. I am so excited to have you on the show. Welcome to the Igbo Initiative podcast, where we celebrate all things Igbo. We speak to amazing women in different walks of life who are either Igbo or who are friends of Igbo culture. I just finished a wonderful chat with Elvira Berry, who is the first of her kind on this show. She's no stranger to adversity and hardship, and her story is outstanding. Elvira was born and grew up in Enugu in eastern Nigeria. Elvira and her two sisters, Cassandra and Vanessa, were raised by a single mother who, out of necessity, was away for long periods of time. Elvira and her sisters found themselves alone and practically raised each other for many years. Elvira moved to the United States at the age of 13, became a single mother at age 20, and put herself through college and law school in spite of raising a son by herself. Today, she wears many hats. She is an attorney, a business owner, a single mother, and now a politician running for state senate for the 17th district in Pennsylvania. In today's episode, two things that Elvira said stand out to me. The first is from President Roosevelt's speech, The Man in the Arena, where Elvira paraphrases a quote from the speech which says, It is not the critic who counts. It is not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood. The second is where Elvira defines power as follows. Power is about knowing what people need and giving it to them. Hey, Elvira, thank you so much for joining. How are you this morning? I am doing well. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. I think we're going to have a really, really interesting discussion because you're the first of your kind on this show. (laughs) (laughs) And by your kind, I mean politician, not evil girl, obviously. (laughs) Tell me, let's kick it off. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Where were you born? You know, what part of Igbo land are you from? Where did you grow up? Talk to me a little bit about your childhood and where you were born, please. I was born in Enugu, which is, we, at the time I was born, it was considered Enugu and Anambra State. So I was born in Enugu. I grew up in Enugu. I went to Independence Layout um, Primary School. And after primary school, for secondary school, I was actually, my secondary school was when they did the split. Mm-hmm. And everybody had to go back to their home, to their state, to go to secondary school. But luckily for us, Mrs. Boulier, she helped us out. So I was able to go to Queen's School in Nugu because she had an affiliation with them. Mm-hmm. And so after uh, independence left, I went to Queen's School in Nugu and I was there for three years before we came to America. Hmm. So we came here in 1993. But before that, you know, I lived with my sisters, Cassandra and Vanessa, and we lived with our mom. We were raised by a single mom. My father died when I was five years old. Oh, wow. And I know when we were in Nigeria, my mom worked for the British Council and they sent her to England to the University of Exeter 
Hmm. so that she can do her master's degree there. So while she was there, we had some people that were supposed to take care of us, and some of them stayed for the entire time that my mom was there. Some of them didn't stay for the entire time that my mom was there. So for periods of time, it was just the three of us living together. Hmm. Yeah, and after she came back, she went back, she went to the United States to do her PhD, and for periods of time too. We were all living by ourselves, you know, Cassandra, me, and Vanessa, and we came to America in 93. So to put it in perspective, I was, I was 13 years old in 93, and Vanessa was 15, and Cassandra was 16. And since 1988, we have had periods of time when we lived by ourselves. Wow. Taking care of ourselves. Wow. Yes, but you know, it's Nigeria. Your neighbors help you. They know what the situation is. And as long as the house is paid for, you're fine, you know, but we really had to buckle together and be more than sisters and just make sure that it works. Mm. But after we came, we moved to Rockville, Maryland with my mom. And of course, we grew up in Rockville. I went to Richard Montgomery High School. Mm -hmm. And from there, I went to Montgomery College. I went to University of Maryland, the baby came. And you know what, you know the rest of the story. I do. And it's an amazing story. I didn't know the beginning of it. So it makes me admire you even more, Vera, because um, <laughs> obviously <laughs> you're no stranger to hardship and adversity, and no. struggle, which has obviously helped develop who you are today, which is uh, that lady that had the grit and determination to succeed. So that's amazing. I didn't know that at all. Talk to me about what it means to you to be an Igbo girl in the context of what you've just told us. Did you, were you aware of your identity as an Igbo girl or was that kind of background you're just trying to survive? Talk to me a little bit about that. I think until, I think I started thinking of identity in 2000 and I would have to say 2010. Before then, it was really more about survival. Mm. It was trying to go from one place to the next place and make sure that you want on your two feet. So I, as an evil person, I knew I was an evil person. I knew that, you know, you wake up, you take a shower, you go to school, you come back. Sometimes you have electricity, sometimes you don't. Mm. And you guys go outside, you play, you have fun with your friends and family members come to visit. During Christmas, you go to the village and you guys celebrate Christmas. And then after Christmas, you come back. So I knew that and I enjoyed that part of being Nigerian, that part of being an Igbo person. But I never really focused on me as a person. It was just surviving. That's what we're doing. Mm. Do you speak the language? Of course I speak the language. But I speak more of Central Igbo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, So I because I'm from our nature. And my, and my mom is from Guinea, mm-hmm. but I speak more of Central Igbo. You know, I grew up in Enugu, so that's the word that I speak. So talk us through your journey. In the, again, you know, obviously survival was more important than your identity as an Igbo, <laughs> which kind of makes, obviously makes sense. But you talked about, you gave us a really high level summary of how you came to the U.S. You left in, uh, you came here in 1993 and then you kind of worked your yeah. way from your your time from University of Maryland to where you are today. Talk us through that journey. I'm really interested to hear it. So University of Maryland was was more of a lifeline for me because I went to UMUC. 
when people think of University of Maryland, they're thinking of College Park. Right. But I actually went to UMUC, which is for the adult people. Mm-hmm. So my classmates were really women in their 50s. But you know, I had Jordan at 20. So I had to work full time and I had to take care of Jordan during the day. And I could only go to classes in the evening and online. Mm-hmm. So I was the youngest person in the class. And everybody wondered, why is she here? Mm. But most of us had kids that were the same age. And most of, us, most of us were going through the same thing. So it was more of being like keeping touch with some of the women. And it was, it was more of trying to earn a degree while you're working kind of thing. Mm. And so after that, but while I was trying to earn my degree, because I graduated in 1997. That's when I graduated from high school. But I didn't earn my bachelor's degree till 2005 mm. because life happened in between that period of time. Mm. And but towards the end of 2005, I knew that I wanted to go to law school because I was working for um, a legal department in a, in a mutual holding company. So I knew I wanted to go to law school. Mm. It was a matter of how do I manage law school and manage my son mm. and manage other things that life would throw at me. Hmm. And I knew that I couldn't really do law school the way that I wanted to do law school and work at the same time. I know many women that did it, and I'm so proud of them. Yeah. But since I worked through undergrad, and it took so long for me to actually get my bachelor's degree, I wanted to just focus on going to law school. So we took a step back, hmm. shared all the extra things that we knew that we couldn't really afford, we got on food stamp, we got on public assistance, and I went to, I went to law school without working. Mm. And during the summer, I took a job to make sure that I could actually see Jordan, you know, when, 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 when he was in a session. And then after law school, I told myself that I, I've made it this way, and I've made it because I've been accountable to myself, I've been accountable to my son, and I've been accountable in every single step of my life. I told myself, you have to continue with accountability. Mm. So I worked with, um, I did a clerkship with um, Judge Keane in Atlantic City. Mm. And after that, I investigated employment discrimination cases for the Department of Labor in Delaware. Mm. And that actually gave me, that gave me a different perspective in life because going in, I thought I was more of a plaintiff's person. But once I went in and I was investigating cases, I, under, I saw myself as what I'm supposed to do, which is an impartial person holding somebody accountable when it's needed. Mm. Not just saying, well, there must have been discrimination because this woman is in front of me crying, but actually looking at the evidence and making sure that the evidence matches mm. what is being claimed. Mm. And so from there, I went to work with the um, Baltimore City Department of Human Resources and I worked for them as a um, policy and compliance manager, which is more of accountability, trying to make sure that all the departments within the city of Baltimore were actually doing what they were supposed to do. Because you have your policies in front of you. You give them training on the policies. And then they go out there and they have to now implement the policies. Mm. What I did was I helped them implement the policies, but also I held them accountable hmm. for periods of time when they didn't actually implement the policies. And so we worked with the union, we worked with the service, um, civil service commission. And from that, I knew that my role, because I always thought of myself as the person who um, 
who who thinks in a very straight line, mm. right? Mm-hmm. But from that, I understood that my role wasn't just about thinking in a straight line, but it's actually making sure that people are okay in their daily lives. When you go to work, you're doing what you're supposed to do, and the job is actually taking care of you. And so I was lucky enough to get an, a job with an agency that has um, 300 employees. I was able to get a job with them as a director of human resources. Mm-hmm. And I worked with them, you know, I implemented a new human resources procedure and I helped them clean up mistakes that they had made in the past. Mm-hmm. And while working with them, the agency actually helps people with intellectual disabilities. And while working with them, I said to myself, you know what? It's a good thing that you're working with people with, with you're working with employees, but you can actually have your own company. Hmm. And actually set the standard and set the culture. And so I said, you know what, Elvira, it's time for you to, to start your own company. So I actually left my job, which at the time everybody was screaming because they thought, <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. Like, it's such a big risk. You worked so hard to get to where you are. You're the director of human resources in such a big company. What are you doing? But I, because I had money saved up and you know, my uncle was willing to help me out. So I actually left and I started my own company that helps people with intellectual disabilities. We started November 1st, 2015, and now we have over 30 employees. And not only that, from day one, we provide 100% health insurance to them. This means that they don't have to worry about having, um, they don't have to pay anything for health insurance except for the copay that they pay when they go to the doctor's office. Mm. And this is where we are today. Wow. Wow. So there's a lot that you said there that I really want to unpack because your story is really amazing, you know, and, and you mentioned that you've done all this while raising a, a child as a single mother. So talk, yes. take, let's go a step back. Talk to us about Jordan a little bit and, and some of the challenges <laughs> of life as a single mother. Yeah. Being a parent is hard, period. It, it's hard by the same time you get there is so much benefit to being in here because with Jordan, I get to share his day with him. I get to see him happy whenever he achieves something new. I get to see him after college. I get to see him experience college. So being a parent by itself is very, very rewarding. But, you know, you're a parent, so you know, it's very challenging mm. also. But being a single parent is just hard. I don't even know how else to explain it. Yeah. It's just really, really hard. Yeah. It's like going up a hill. That's what it is. It's just like going up a hill. You know that eventually you're going to get to the top of the hill. And you know that you're carrying somebody with you. And no matter what happens, both of you will get there. But you also know it's going to be very hard. That's what being a parent is. Because there were times when I just wished I didn't have just one income in the family. And there were times when I wished that somebody could pick up Jordan and take him to the doctor's office because I really couldn't leave work. Mm. And there were times when he just wanted to come home and he called his mom and said, mom, please just pick me up. And you know your child, you know what he needs, you know what his emotional needs are. And you say to yourself, if he's calling me, he needs me. Mm. But at the same time, you don't have enough um, paid vacation or paid sick leave left mm. to actually take time off. So being a, being a single parent, parent is very hard. Mm. It's just, I don't think there's any other words that can describe it, but just extremely hard. So as you're talking, you know, I'm kind of thinking to myself, you've talked through your challenges of childhood, 
you and your two sisters, basically, I, I, I'll go so far as saying to raise yourselves, in, you know, to a certain mm-hmm. degree, coming here and it's not been easy, raising a, a, a child as a single mother. All these experiences point to a level of determination and grit and also risk-taking, by the way, because you quit a job that you had to start a company. <laughs> so I guess... Which everybody thought was crazy, by the way. Everybody thought that was so crazy. Yes, yes, like- yes, yes, yeah, exactly. So all of those things combined lead me to somehow suspect that that's why you are where you are today. Am I correct? And when I say where you are, I'd like you to talk about what it is you want want to do now because you know at the beginning I said that you're one of your kind a politician <laughs> yes. office so I'd like you to talk about how all your experiences have led to the decision to run for office and then maybe we can segue into what it is you're running for and why does that make sense yes so I am running for office I'm running for state senate for the 17th district and when people ask me why now why are you doing this i tell them that you know life has been what it is and this is actually the only time that i can do it because this is the time when jordan is gone because when jordan was here he was 100 percent of me that was what i did 100 percent. but jordan is gone and this is the only time that i can actually do something that i want to do not something that i have to do mm. and what I want to do is to serve. I really do want to serve and I do want to make sure that our um, representatives are being held accountable for every single thing that they're doing because they have constituents out there who go about their daily lives, who depend on decisions that are made in Harrisburg. And so I want to make sure that I, since I know that I have been affected by all these decisions in the, ba- in the past, I want to make sure that now that I can actually do it because I am an attorney. I'm a small business owner, I'm a single mom. I have been in every single step of the way for most, most of the people that we have in my district. Mm-hmm. I have been poor, I have been middle class, I have been not poor. Mm-hmm. So I know what people have been through. I know what effects laws have on, have on our lives and I know how to hold people accountable. And so now, that I can actually do it because Jordan is not here. So I can actually dedicate myself to taking care of people, taking care of my community. I want to do it. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is when I was younger, after my divorce, everybody said, you need to get married. You're very young. You cannot take care of it. And that, but I went to see my social worker and I told her what people were saying. And she told me about this um, speech that was given by um, President Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. And the speech is called The Man in the Arena. I'm not going to go through the whole speech, but in this speech, um, um, the president basically says that it's not the person who criticizes that matters. The person that actually matters is the person who goes in and fights, not because he or she thinks that he's going to, or he or she will win, but rather because they believe in something and they want to get it done. Hmm. And that's what I always go by. I always go, because it, it doesn't matter how badly I do or whether somebody else is stronger than I am. All that matters is that I believe and I fight. Oh, the man in the arena. Mm, the man in the arena. Okay, so I have to yeah. go back and look for that. So this is the thing, but the funny thing is that growing up, I always told Jordan about it, right? And I don't know if he paid attention to me, mm. but when he graduated, the person that gave them the speech on the graduation day 
read that same speech to them. Wow. I know. And then he came and he was like, oh, yeah, that guy was giving you a speech. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, oh, okay, Jordan. Wow. <laughs> so I guess you were listening to me. Wow. Yeah. So talk to us about how you think you will do things differently if you're elected. What impact do you believe that you will make? And if you look at the other candidates, I'm not aware of who they are. What makes you stand out? Why is your story different to theirs? Well, if we want to go from back to forward, what makes me stand out is that I actually have experience to okay. do the job. Mm-hmm. So that's what makes me stand out. But um, what I would do differently is that I would hold myself accountable. So mm. one thing that I would do differently is that I will make sure that I am being held accountable for the things that I'm doing and that other people who are in, in the Senate um, office are being held accountable. So that's the one thing that I would definitely do differently. Mm, interesting. It's also very important to me that we stand by our values so that when we say that something is important, we're actually fulfilling those values when people are not looking. For example, when I started the company back in 2015, I didn't have any money to pay myself. I didn't really have money for the company, but I always paid the employees more than the industry standard. But not only that, I only pay, I always paid 100% of their health insurance. Hmm. So what this means is that there is no deduction from their paycheck for health insurance. Hmm. And this is for full-time employees and part-time employees also. That's such a great example of standing by what you believe, you know, not just talking the talk, but actually walking the walk. So tell us when you kicked off your campaign and what some of the challenges are. Well, I kicked off in October 2019. I think you guys all heard about it before October because I have been talking about this since April. Okay. But I kicked off, yeah, so I kicked off in, in um, October 2019. And I have had, when I go and I speak to people, they have been very welcoming. And they have, they're willing to listen to my message. They know my background. They know my experience because my experience is in policy and compliance. And they know that I am an attorney. So they know that I'm not just going in there and hoping for the best. They know that I will actually go in there and make a difference. So that has been very good. Mm-hmm. But the challenge is that it's really more focused on fundraising because with fundraising, you can do as much as you want to do. You call people and they do their pledges. Hopefully the pledges come in. So some of the biggest challenges for my campaign is just fundraising. Because we have a situation where the governor is holding my, the incumbent very accountable for his actions. The Democratic Caucus in Harrisburg is holding the incumbent very accountable. But some of his donors are not holding him accountable. And so that's the most challenging part, just knowing that you have to fundraise because you need to advertise, you need to put yourself out there. People have to know that they have another option. What are some of the lessons? Because obviously, correct me if I'm wrong, you've never run for public office before. So this no. is <laughs> And in the short time since you've kicked off your, your campaign to now, what are some of the lessons you learned or what are some of the things that are very surprising that you didn't expect? And how will those lessons make you a better public servant? Well, a lesson that I have learned, which is something that has always kind of been in the back of my mind, and I actually have it, I actually have it on my desk, is um, power. I think that having been, having been, I've always been in a position where I am struggling and I'm trying to get to the next level without falling or if I fall without falling too far down, Mm. I've never really had 
power until recently. Well, before I even started running, I've never really had power. And I think that people don't understand what power really is. Because Abraham Lincoln once said that nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, you should give him power. Hmm. I think that people don't understand that power is not about being able to command people. Power is about knowing what people need and giving it to them. Hmm. Now, my constituents are actually my employers, right? I feel safe, Senator. It's not my place to make deals that benefit me. It's my place to make sure that I'm actually doing things that serve my constituents. For example, I want to make sure that we have good um, uniform education in the I want to make sure that we have uniform education in our district because my district is so big that we have places that are very that have very wealthy people and then places that have people who are below um, minimum who make below minimum wage, right? Mm. And so the school system that I have in Lower Marion is very different from the school system that I have in Norristown, and I think that's unfair. If I have the power to make legislation. What I need to do is to make sure that I'm making a legislation that actually helps have uniformity in education across the district. The same thing with healthcare. Everybody's saying healthcare is very important. We need to provide universal healthcare. But then we don't focus on the fact that healthcare has other things that are very, very, very critical to very small groups of people. For example, insulin. Insulin prices are extraordinary. Hmm. We have people that pay $800 every, every other month for insulin. This is a life-saving drug. Hmm. And I say to myself, as a legislator, that should be my number one priority, to make sure that people can actually afford their life-saving drug. Hmm. So, it, so one thing that I have learned is that you have to understand what power is and then hmm. use it to actually help your employers who are your constituents. Hmm. So as we wrap up, Elvira, can you please tell the audience a few things? The first thing is how, if they want to get involved and help, how can they donate to your campaign? Do you have a website address? Are you on social media? How can they follow your updates and, and, and keep connected to what it is that you're doing so they can follow your progress? Yes. Um, people can actually follow me by, follow my program and help me out by going on my website, which is elviraberry.com. That's E-L-V-I-R-A, Barry, B as in boy, E-R-R-Y.com. You can make donations on the website. You can sign up to be a volunteer. You don't have to be here in person to volunteer. You can actually volunteer for Maryland if you want to. Mm-hmm. So you can sign up to be a volunteer, but you can also make a donation. If you want to follow me online, just to keep updates, to get updates from me, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And it's just Elvira N. Barry. So it's E-L-V-I-R-A-N as in Nancy, D-E-R-R-Y. Sounds good, Elvira. This has been amazing. Is there anything that you would have liked to talk about that we haven't discussed? I'd love to give you that opportunity. I want to tell Nigerians out there, because I think when we're growing up, they tell us that we should become doctors and lawyers. I want to tell Nigerians out there that we actually have to be decision makers still. So it's not just about making money. We have to encourage our children to be at the place where decisions are being made. Mm. And that's just serving in public office. I know the pay isn't that much, but you're actually making a difference in people's lives. Mm. Mm. So maybe we can encourage more Nigerians to be in office 
Interesting. I love that. And I think that's such a great way to end this discussion. Thank you so much, Elvira. It's been Thank lovely you having so you. Much, <laughs> and Thank hopefully, you so much, And hopefully we'll see you soon, Elvira. I look forward to following your progress. I'm so excited for you and I'm so proud of you as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was another awe-inspiring chat with an outstanding Igbo woman among outstanding people. This talk gave me goosebumps because it is a reminder that how you start does not have to determine what you become. I am so proud of Elvira and I wish her every success. To support Elvira's campaign, please visit the website elviraberry.com where you can sign up to volunteer, make a donation and follow her progress. I will make these details available in this episode's show notes. As always, visit the website, theebo.com, to access other episodes and to get engaged. If you have not left a review, please do so on Apple Podcasts. You can also subscribe wherever you listen so that you get episodes automatically. I love connecting with you and I am grateful for the opportunity. In the next episode, I chat to one of the founders of Umu Ibo Unite. Stay tuned. Blessings to you always. Bye-bye.